broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing. Get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello, everybody. This is Heidi Keeler, host of RN Huddle. Thank you so much for being here, joining us in the great state of Nebraska. Once again, in this era, we are socially distancing in recording our podcasts. So that just brings an extra special flair to each episode. And today, I'm really excited to announce that the episode today will be another in our series in partnership with the NPIAP. And this series really is bringing some amazing education in regards to wound care, ostomy care, and the world of skin and the care of wounds. And we are so proud to be partnered with the NPIAP. This is an extra special relationship and brings such meaning to the episodes that we do in partnership with them. Today, the episode is going to be co-hosted by our own Renee Paulin. And as you know, Renee is a WOCN and is interested in all things wounds. And so she is partnered today with our special guest, Anne-Marie Nee. She is a family nurse practitioner and CWOC at Children's Minnesota Hospital. And Anne-Marie is a member of the NPIAP Educational Committee and is also a board member of the NPIAP. So she is extremely influential and involved in leadership at the national level. And her specialty is she's going to talk about how children's skin, in particular how young infant skin, is different than the adult skin and the considerations that have to be put in place when you're working with this population. So without further ado, Renee, thank you so much for co-hosting and Anne-Marie, thank you for being here. Good morning or good afternoon to our listeners. This is Renee Paulin. And today on RN Huddle, we have Anne-Marie Nee, who is a family nurse practitioner and CWOCN at Children's Minnesota Hospital with vast experience in neonatal and pediatric wound management with a large focus on preventing pressure injuries in the pediatric and neonatal populations. She has published in the area of pressure injury prevention in pediatrics and neonatal care and has spoken nationally and internationally on the subject. Her recent research in neonatal care is especially interesting and so happy to hear from her today on this focused topic involving neonatal skin and pressure injuries. This research has been very impactful and she has been an immense asset to the NPIAP, Pan Pacific PI Alliance, and the EPUAP where she led the team concerning neonatal and pediatric care in the updated 2019 Pressure Injury Prevention Clinical Practice Guideline. Whew! With that said, we are very honored to welcome to RN Huddle, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's interesting as you go on in your career to have you relate all that, and all I think I am doing is protecting the little ones. So thank you. Yes, we appreciate you. And I want to ask you, what attracted you to the world of neonatal skincare? It's so specialized and so needed, of course, too. So the most interesting thing, when I started out in nursing, well, many years ago now, 
I actually started in an adult hospital in rehab and loved rehab. And everybody on my floor at the time were all getting certifications. And I read up on all of the certifications that were out there. And the only one that really appealed to me, and at the time it was an ET nurse, but it was all ostomies. And that did not attract me. Although I enjoy ostomies now, it was not something that I found uh, I wanted a certification in. Mm -hmm. I started having my own children and eventually left the floor and was in home care. And it was actually in the 10 years that I was in home care that I got to see wounds. And wounds just absolutely turned me on. It was the most amazing thing to feel that you had even a small part in giving somebody their life back when they got these open wounds. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that I discovered about myself when I was in nursing school is I love pediatrics. Those little kids just appealed to my heart. But I was actually told by an instructor I had no business in pediatrics because I wanted to take them all home. And I did. <laughs> I would have picked up every last baby there was and then just take them into my home. But of course, you can't do that. So when I had the opportunity, I had been in home care 10 years. Um, I was raising my own children and running around the, I worked, I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio at the time, mm -hmm. literally driving all over the city. I thought this has got to stop. And so I applied for a rehab position at um, Cincinnati Children's Hospital and was so incredibly grateful to have had that opportunity and was on the rehab floor while there that the hospital started going through their magnet uh, certification. And I went to who was leading Magnet and said, hey, what are we doing about pressure ulcers, which they were at the time, and was told children don't get pressure ulcers. And yet I was seeing them on our floor. And I went, okay, somebody has to do something. And so from there became my journey. Oh, and that's where the passion began. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yes. You know, I'm the same way as a CWCN. I just have a huge passion in wound care and it just drives you to want to make a difference. And I like our listeners to know what a huge impact you had made while you were there. Um, you spearheaded a 12 month long safety collaborative, right? On various units. Um, yeah. when you started out. So when I first took the position, it was an originally, the position was originally for a nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't know at the time is that one of my mentors who today has made such an incredible impact on me and my life. Oh, forgive me. I just love this lady. It's Mary Honored Long. And she also applied for the position as a CNS. And she told the manager who had the position that she was not the right person for the job that even though I was an RN, I was the person for the job. And oh, so wow. they, I know. So they actually changed the job description for it to be an RN. And when I reapplied for it, what they said to me multiple times was, Anne Marie, you're going to get your NP, right? <laughs> so of <laughs> course I did. But the first thing that we looked at, because again, we were still in this journey of magnet was pressure injuries. And I got the opportunity to go up to Children's in Columbus, and it was Children's Columbus at the time, it's now nationwide, to watch their process of how they performed in prevalence. And we took that information, and I was paired up with an incredible woman who I still 
uh, today, two of them who helped guide me on my career path. And we put together our first prevalence at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I got the opportunity to actually train 40 nurses. Mm -hmm. And our first prevalence, we our rate was not really well because again, no one was looking at it. So we were at nine, I believe it was 9.3% throughout the entire organization. And these two lovely ladies said to me, and Maria, now we have to take it to our safety manager. And I didn't understand any of that. Remember, I was so new from just coming off of the floor. This was in that first year of taking that, that position, we did this. So we went to our safety manager and I said, hey, presented all the data. And they looked at me and they said, we are starting a safety collaborative. We would like pressure injuries to be a part of it. And from there is where we developed our entire program at Cincinnati Children's. We looked at, at that point, um, the information that I had was actually from the WOCN. They had that beautiful little booklet on preventing pressure mm -hmm. injuries, right? right? And so I took that as my little Bible. Today, I still have it with all the highlights in it. <laughs> and we went through every step that was in that to make sure that it actually worked within pediatrics because no one had ever done this before. And that was also the amazing thing is I didn't realize at the point I was actually pioneering something because mm -hmm. again, you I just had a love was, for it. So I you did. just kind of took it on and I did. I just kind of took it on and said, let's see where this goes. And we actually decreased our pressure injuries by over 80%. And we got the award for being on that collaborative. And so the whole thing taught me so many amazing things, that whole collaborative. is first thing was not to take things for granted, which is where my dissertation is leading to in my PhD program, is that in pediatrics, so many of what we do is actually modified versions of what is in the adults. And so that collaborative for the administration who was there said to me, and Marie, are we sure that preventing pressure injuries in pediatrics is the same as adults? And I took that to heart. And even just recently at the launch of the guidelines, I spoke with Janet Cutigan. And because we are looking at on the NPIAP, what is considered unavoidable and what is avoidable in regards to end of life. And we had had a teenager in our institution who what looked like would have been considered an end-of-life pressure injury. And she said, are you sure? And I thought, you know, she's absolutely right. I don't know. And so I always keep that in mind when people give me absolutes. How do we know? Right. And so, so that's where all your research uh -huh. stemmed from. And I, I, I have to definitely ask you about that so our listeners can know too. But first, I want to say um, that collaborative that you did, we'll have to attach that article because even though it was years ago, I mean, people can still take that and incorporate the same initiatives that you did into their practice as well. But I have to acknowledge that, you know, you said the prevalence rate was around what, 9.4 and you decreased it to yes. 3.4 and then yes. down to 1.2. I was... Yeah. That is just fantastic. And I'm sure a lot of people, that was a huge impact for the organization and on the various nurses that you trained too. So very impactful. And I, I do want to take a step back as a reminder for our listeners, you know, when we're talking about neonatal skin today, neonates is four weeks 
or less, right? In 28 a, days. From birth to 28 days is the neonatal period. Okay. All right. And you know, part of my clinical for my WOCN education involved just a little bit of neonatal care. And I'm not going to lie, it made me very apprehensive in regard to products as their mm-hmm. skin is just so different, especially related to, you know, the permeability, the fragility of the underlying layers of tissue. Could you describe these physiological factors of the neonatal skin and how it relates to pressure injury development in these neonates? So um, in our institution, uh, I have a colleague and she is a neonatal nurse practitioner and she has now been in uh, wound care roughly six years and she's a WOCN. And what she was seeing and what I had already seen within Cincinnati Children's was that things were not exactly the same. But what was concerning to me is that in this neonatal period, it was always said over and over, we're different, we're different, we're different. And yet the articles all talk about more related to function, the function of the skin. And what was missing was the structure of the skin. There is a lot of speculation as to when things start to develop and what we believe things develop and how, how that happens. And what we were seeing was very different clinically. The other thing I want to say off, when you're attempting to look at a pressure injury in a neonate, the size of what you're seeing is minuscule. And so that has to be taken in consideration with all of this. So we approached a pediatric pathologist within our institution, and she got very intrigued about what we are attempting to do in regards to staging a pressure injury. So how can you stage if you don't know what skin cells are actually present? And what we found out is any child that expires in the institution, they take skin cells over the abdomen. Now we're very well aware that's a limitation to our study is that pressure injuries typically do not occur over the abdomen in that the abdomen is actually tends to be more thicker in skin than where we would see the pressure injuries at. So we're aware of that, but it was also a wonderful starting point. And so she took, I believe it was 46 different uh, skin cells, different patients, and was able to put them together and look through the microscope to see what was actually present. And what she discovered is what we were seeing actually clinically. So the youngest within our study is actually 18 weeks gestation. So all of them were born live, I wanna say that off, and then they expired. And there was a couple things that was fascinating to us. So 20 weeks or less gestation, there was no stratum corneum at all. Mm. And these children are actually, they're not, They don't tend to live, but they are being born live. So without that stratum corneum, they actually look like they have a sunburn. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of these, these very little ones. Mm -hmm. From 21 weeks to 29 weeks gestation, there is a stratum corneum, but it is so weak. And so that's that ruddy, again, that very ruddy looking coloring. And then she started noticing that with the epidermal layer, it was a basket weave type of a keratin that's present. So this basket weave keratin does not have the tensile strength to be able to 
the tissue tolerance that we like to talk about within pressure injury. So it's not there. The strength is not there to be able to take on something that we apply to this child to prevent it from causing skin damage. Mm -hmm. the, most, the biggest skin damage that occurs within this group is actually epidermal stripping. So what she found in that 21 to 29 weeks gestational age is that the epidermal layer is actually only one to two cell layers in thickness. And it's not well put together. Remember, that's a basket weave. Right. From the 30 to 40 weeks is when the epidermal thickness is two to four cells, and it depends on the age. So here we are, and we're only looking, this is just, and I'm only at this point talking about the epidermal layers right? So this is all I've got. Mm. So when I go in and I put something on them, whether it's a product or whether it's a device, cell layers. And I want that to be very clear right. because the adults, what are we talking? We're talking 10 to 12 cell layers and I've only got two to four in this group. So the thickness is not it's just not there. When they're full term, you will read articles that will say you've got a fully functioning skin and it may be fully functioning, but I still only have, this is full term, three to four cell layers related to the epidermis. And so you wonder why we're seeing pressure injuries. We have nothing. These kids have nothing. Mm -hmm. In the dermis, so the dermis is not, or the ridges is actually not present again in that very young, the very young, they don't show up, the ridges don't show up until about 28 weeks, which is also why it makes sense that that skin stripping occurs very frequently in these neonates that are very young aged. The hair follicles and shafts, they don't show up until they're about the 21 to 29 weeks in the dermal, the dermis is so Thin. Mm -hmm. The other thing that she observed is that as they're born, so they could be born like 25 weeks, that we see them in our institution, of course, younger, they actually live, or 22 weeks there, there is a survival rate now because of what we have done. But mm -hmm. as they age, the dermal layer actually decreases. And the reason we, again, it's a hypothesis because we don't know, we are thinking it has more to do with dehydration. They're even, they're put in an isolate with humidity to help the skin to develop, but they're not hanging on to it because of the transepidermal water loss. And so the dermis actually can become thinner. So now we have even less. We don't have a good epithelial layer. We have even less of a dermis. And then she found out through all this research is that the subcutaneous lipid layer is not well formed. It's actually scattered. So you've got these very scattered starting lipid layer throughout the subcutaneous. And so when we think about staging this, it is so difficult to even tell clinically, what am I looking at? So this research was done. This is just recent research. This is brand spanking new. <laughs> we is, we just got and you yeah. know it's just remarkable that you took this on along with your other colleagues and yeah this is I would think is going to translate into this somehow into the staging system of MPIP, which is used for all ages, correct? Yes, it is used for all ages. There is no differentiation because it has always been assumed, again, we're talking the adults down into the child, that everybody has the same skin, which on the surface 
makes sense. But in this very, very young group, they don't have the skin that's there. It's not formed yet. So the article has been accepted in pediatric and developmental pathology. And so we are waiting. We don't have as to when this is coming out. And I am in the process of completing an article, um, writing it up, and using our discussion points for what we just talked about. How does this then translate Mm -hmm. for pressure injuries? And what is the missing pieces here? We are hoping for a third article because we wanted to separate it out because there's so much information in here. You're a busy lady. (laughs) Yeah, the the third article will be how does this then translate for products that we are putting on the skin in this young group? Why do we have to be cautious about products when we, you know, we have basket weave keratin that allows very quickly for absorption into lower layers, which causes damage. So that's Mm -hmm. a whole nother topic when we talk about an etoderma of prematurity. So we felt that it was too much (laughs) for one article. Oh, definitely. And so that's many layers. Yeah, there's there's many layers layers to this. And when I go back and I read the the, uh, information that is out there currently, this is new. This is really new information. It is very exciting. And I'm just you know, thrilled and honored to actually have contributed and to be a part of this, this good work. So what I'm hearing there is quite a bit of difference when it comes to the layers of the skin due to the ever-changing growth of the cellular level between mm-hmm. neonatal, pediatric, and adults. So yes. uh, we're going to have to have you back on this topic. I'm so interested, excited for your uh, more research to come and um, your articles. So I did want to ask you about product selection. I know this is probably could be a discussion in itself, but I'm personally more experienced in the adult product selection, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, but can you tell us like in regard to the fragile neonate skin, like you had discussed, what products are beneficial or what should we be avoiding or just a little snippet of what you look for? So one of the things that is very much within the world of preventable harm. And for line prevention, you know, infection at the line, so of course that's very important, what has been instituted in just about every hospital in the entire United States is bathing with CHG. So they have found that that is successful. What we have seen is that if we use CHG wipes on these infants with a central line, less than 28 weeks gestation, that's when we see that an etoderma of prematurity, a lot of things that will occur. It looks almost like a burn. And what we believe is happening is that when we're talking about that they do have a stratum corneum, but they have this keratin epidermis, which allows for penetration into the dermal layer, is that it's actually destroying, necrosing the dermal layer. And these children have permanent scarring from that. Mm -hmm. And so CHG is something you really have to be very cautious about in this population. Betadine can do the same thing. I'm trying to think of some other products. Uh, Sulfasilvadine, uh, anything that has what would be considered more type of a toxicity level that they can actually absorb within their skin. Yeah, be very cautious with that. 
when we look at product selection, we go through every ingredient that is there mm -hmm. and to make sure that there is no harm that can be done. And the one thing I want to say off when you're partnering with um, companies for products, mm -hmm. they love to say that, oh, we've never heard of anybody this is, you know, that's had any ill effects from this. But what is missing, and it is always missing, and please, I'm not putting them down. It's just I want people to be aware is that it is never, research has never been performed within this very young group. Okay. So, is, is there any resources for our listeners regarding product selection, some table for ages or anything uh, like that out there? I, I'm thinking, I know that myself and my colleague, Deanna Johnson, we presented at uh, WOCN in 2019. And we talked about products that needed to be avoided and products that were safe. Um, I don't know that I have, I, well, I personally have a table, but you're right. That needs to go into that next article mm -hmm. as to what needs to be avoided and what should not. Because if we go back historically, there was a lot of things that was considered safe. And what it did was cause harm and death to actually, and they're not even that young at that point. They were just infants oh. because they were not able to survive if they were not close to term, you know, even sometimes even 50 years ago. And so as technology has increased, we are able to keep these infants alive with technology that, which is a wonderful thing, but you have to be very cautious with what is considered toxic and what is not toxic because for an adult, it's fine. I can bathe you all day long with CHG and I'll have an issue, but right. with this very young group, I cannot do that. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and I know a lot of our experts are WOCNs, you know, maybe like myself, you know, more experienced in the adult population. And then even, you know, personally, you know, friends, family oh. asking me questions. And I'm always very hesitant with the pediatrics or um, infants because of what you're saying about safety um, regarding certain products. So actually, now that I'm thinking about it, thank you for me, because I'm thinking to myself, Amory, didn't you create a table? And actually, it just dawned on me, I did. I, I apologize. I've been doing so many projects along <laughs> with my PhD that sometimes things are escaping me. Understandable. So I got the opportunity uh, this past year. I have revised for the Bryant and Nick's textbook on wound care, which we use for our WOCN. And in that particular chapter, they asked me to revise. I did revise the table of products that we need to avoid for our children and products that are safe. So that textbook is not out yet. It is still in revision, but it is in there. Okay, great. I believe it's coming out in the spring, if I remember correctly. But mm, timeline got pushed back because of COVID. So... Of course, everything's pushed back because of COVID. Right. So somewhere in 2021, I believe that textbook is coming out. Okay, great. And with the neonates, the medical devices is one of the larger challenges, right? When it comes yes. to pressure injuries and in neonates, especially in the NICU. Medical device is the largest within that group. Yeah. Yes. And it's respiratory yeah. devices. That is our bane of existence. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think that's a challenge amongst all levels of care and age groups. I also, one last thing, in terms of legalities involving neonates and pressure injuries, what advice would you give to our listeners to be sure documentation and their care are in alignment? So there's a couple of things that is very important when to, I want to say, to avoid lawsuits in pediatrics in general. It is very different, in my opinion, than in adults. So when a family gives birth, of course, we all hope that our children are, quote, normal, right? And many times, unfortunately, for whatever reason, they may have a genetic anomaly. It could be cardiac, it could be young birth, it can be respiratory. And so they come to us and they are giving us their most precious asset, which is their child to watch over. And in their mind, we are going to treat that child as they would, which means we do no harm because they would not harm their own child. This is their most precious individual that they're handing to us. Unfortunately, they do not have the knowledge, the parents don't have the knowledge that we have as to why we put certain medical devices on their child. We are doing it to protect their child. We are doing it to help their child. And the best way to offset any type of lawsuit when this does occur is communication. I cannot begin to tell you the amount of lawsuits that I have been able to avoid by speaking with someone. The other very important thing is to not to give misinformation. And I've seen that happen multiple times where well-meaning bedside clinicians will say to them, yeah, this is a pressure injury and it's X, Y, and Z stage. And unfortunately, sometimes the missing piece to that is that pressure injuries can evolve. So especially when you've got that lovely purple skin, for us, it looks like a DTI. In pediatrics, this deep tissue injury can lighten up and you never ever cause a scar. It looks beautiful, it looks awesome. Or the opposite can occur, whereas because you cannot see if it's gone into the subcutaneous layer, it has now deepened. We now have Eshkar sitting there. Anytime I see Eshkar on these baby scouts, I know I have got scarring alopecia. It is what occurs. But if it is minimized in any way, or if the parent perceives it as being minimalized, they're going to head towards lawsuit. You caused permanent damage to my child. If you recognize their feelings, if you help them to understand that, yes, we have done the best that we can, I am very sorry that this occurred to you. Let me see what I can do to help. It makes the world of difference to a parent because they feel as if you're a team member with them on protecting their child versus someone who has done something to their child. Yes, the communication piece is absolutely necessary with the family. Thank you for that advice. That's very helpful. What are some other unique considerations specific to the neo population that you would like to share with our listeners? So the biggest thing that I can see, and again, it's very difficult to see, is that columellum. So when we look at the columellum, or people will call them the septum. So 
the nasal cannulas and the CPAP BiPAP mask all rest on that columella. And it is literally developing cartilage at the time that they are born. So it has zero tensile strength to be able to withstand any type of pressure that is there. And that has to be so diligently watched. And currently, bubble CPAP is so very important to the development of these lungs, of these very little ones. And so many times we want to go straight from oral intubation or nasal intubation and quickly put them on bubble CPAP because we know it helps with the development of their lungs. But the piece that we're missing sometimes is that that developing columellum cannot withstand the weight of the mask put upon it. And the columellum buckles. And as it buckles, you will see this linear line right there. And that linear line actually is the damage that is occurring underneath. Sometimes mm. the skin never breaks and sometimes it will break and you'll see the damage is gone because there's going to be no subcutaneous tissue there. And all you've got is those two kind of little cells, maybe mm -hmm. four whole cells that are there and right away you have damage through and you're into cartilage. So for me, if I was in that unit and know I've got bubble CPAP, that is the area to watch. Because unfortunately, our typical prevention measures don't work. Because you're not offloading. What it does is it presses down on the top of the nasal, of the top mm -hmm. of your nose, and it buckles the columellum. So there is nothing that I can put there that's going to prevent that. It has everything to do with how that mask is positioned on the nose. And you have to remove the weight of it and put it back on the scalp by pulling up the device, the whole, it's a, more like a helmet device. Mm -hmm. It has to be pulled back so that it, the weight of it is not resting on the nose. And when we're looking at it, it all looks beautiful. It all looks like, well, this isn't heavy. This isn't causing the damage. But you have to remember, they have zero tensile strength there. Mm -hmm. So even a small amount of pressure and what that is, I don't know. I couldn't sit here and tell you it's 32 millimeters of pressure. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. That small amount of bit causes the injuries that we see right there at the columellum, and they're permanent. Oh, geez. So that's a red flag right away, and that should be monitored it very closely. Diligently monitored. Uh -huh. And those permanent scarring, we have seen them later. Um, plastics will not touch them until they're at least eight years old. Oh, wow. Because they're still developing. Okay. Oh. Yeah, so, that, so the device needs to be repositioned frequently and monitored. Is yes. Our, okay, okay. It's a diligent, and I know that, you know, a lot of times they're concerned about, again, we, we realize it's a balancing act. We want to make sure that their lungs develop appropriately. You don't mm -hmm. want them to have long-term respiratory syndrome because their lungs didn't develop appropriately. We understand that, and so it is a balancing act. I always say that you can do both. It is never one versus the other. Right. And we can, and it just requires us to be a little bit more diligent as to assessing the skin and taking appropriate precautions. Frequent communication amongst yes. the staff to be aware of that would be yep. vital for these patients. It sounds communication like. is vital mm -hmm. in this work. Continuous, yes, yes, yes. I totally agree with that. Well, thank you, Anne Marie, for joining us today. 
You're welcome. I'm happy to be present. This was really fun to pick your brain and we thank you for being a guest today on RN Huddle. Anne-Marie has some very, very important and substantial research to share with us in the near future and beyond. Uh, she is definitely several steps ahead of many and will have to come back again to discuss with us. Carabineone is so important to understand and I'm sure our pediatric nurses, NICU, PICU nurses and others find this discussion very critical to their settings. I would ask for our nurses and other healthcare professionals to visit the 2019 NPIP pressure injury prevention guideline updates specific to neonates to be sure you are on track with these evidence-based pressure injury prevention strategies. For our listeners out there, if you have an important topic you would like to share with our fellow nurses, you can always contact us through the RN Huddle website. Once again, thank you everyone for your hard work and dedication in pressure injury prevention. Until we meet again on RN Huddle, thank you. Renee and Anne-Marie, thank you so much for a most engaging and passionate presentation today. It's so fascinating to hear about your experience and all of the things that you have taught us today. It's really been quite the story of persistence and drive, innovation and advocacy and also very educational when it comes to considering the differences in neonatal and infant skin. So both of you, thank you so much. This has been a most engaging episode. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and learning with us. We can't wait to see you next time on RN Huddle. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE. Or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.